minds with the chip inside Like a Lincoln digitized out Which prior to this was higher than science could ever devise This is a neural interface We're gonna stick it in your face Still it in your brain and interlace There's an arms war on and we're gonna win the race Leave everything a race, bring the base Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Now, this is a special edition of DMP tonight, as we're sharing a recording of a talk at the last Body Hacking Con this past January. We're sharing this as a recap of great information that was presented, and as a reminder that the same team behind Body Hacks will be putting on another edition of the Body Hacking Con this coming spring. February 2nd through 4th, 2018, in Austin, Texas, for which tickets are on sale now. For more information, go to bodyhackingcon.com. Now, we look forward to seeing you there for the talks and panels or on the expo floor. Right now, all of us at DMP are gearing up for the DEF before DEFCON here in a couple weeks. Now, the team from Body Hacks will also be there. They have a table at the DEFCON Biohacking Village so be sure to stop by and say hi. But before we share these special clips with you, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. Also, we'd like to thank Axiom VPN, our solution for keeping our traffic on the internet protected and private. To learn more about the services they provide, please go to AxiomVPN.com. Now, if you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us through email at info at dangerousminds.io, and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. Glad to be back here at Body Hacking Con. This is my second year here. I was uh, speaking here last year on sleep. I was kind of curious as to how many people would show up for a sleep talk at a Body Hacking Con. Had a great turnout last year and had great feedback from it. So they invited me to come back this year, and what I wanted to talk about this year is genomics. Genomics is an area of medicine that I practice, uh, precision medicine. I, I work as a concierge physician doing precision wellness. I don't generally work in the disease model, so we work in human performance and optimization model at the Apiron Center, which is um, one of the places that my wife and I founded. We also have the Apiron Academy. These are our two businesses. Uh, I have a podcast called The Iron Man Executive. Um, for biohackers, it's a definite uh, place to go to listen. I talk to a lot of the top scientists in the field of human performance and human optimization, a lot of transhumanists, uh, Zoltan Istvan, um, a lot of the geneticists that are researching aging and enhancing human development. But today, I want to talk about genomics. And really, before I can get into it, I want to give you guys a, kind of a, about a 10-minute background on what genomics is. So we have the, the cellular uh, gnomes. That's the code. So if you think of a computer, we have a code in, in, embedded in there. And that's the genome, the microbiome, and the virome. And you can break that down further in the, in the genome to things like the proteome, the transcriptome, the metabolome. So it really goes down. But as a code that you have, okay, that's embedded code. 
we are just now starting to figure out how to actually change that code through CRISPR technology where we can edit the code. But essentially, the code is what you work from. So that's the base that you build everything from. Then we have the biospherical world or the inputs that we have. So we have energy inputs into this, this functioning machine. We have the functions of the machine itself. We have the mind and we have the environment that we behave in. And it's important to understand that from a, from a DNA level, every cell in your body is constantly assessing the environment and making changes in the expression of that genome in order to accommodate that environment that you're existing in. So it's a constant interaction that's occurring. And we are now in this whole new world of medicine that is just exploding. I mean, this is amazing what we've been able to accomplish. I mean, CRISPR technology, this gene editing technology is like word processors. I mean, you just go in and you say, I want to copy and paste this gene code and put it in. They're, they're concerned because they think that this stuff can actually be done in basement laboratories. It's so simple to do. And in fact, uh, on my podcast, I interviewed um, the chair of the gene doping uh, board for the World Anti-Doping Association because of the gene doping that was occurring in the Rio Olympics where people were adding genes into their genome for performance. And it's very primitive right now, but what's coming it's going to be quite impressive. Um, but we want to talk about the things that we can do that can actually influence the expression of that code and how we can look at our own codes and figure out what we can do to enhance our individual performance. So the code of life, A, T, C, and G. Did anybody watch the movie Gattaca? Yeah, you know what Gattaca is, stands for. It's the codes, the genetic code, just rearranged. So A, T, C, and G is the life codes. We have these paired deoxyribonucleic acids. Uh, it's been the code of life for 4.5 million years until recently when a lab created their own code. They added two letters to it. They call it X and Y. So we've actually created life. We are now the architects of our own evolution. We can change things. We have created life. We're gods, okay? And we've got to get good at it. So when we look at our individual genomes, we have 46 chromosomes. That's 23 paired chromosomes. In that, our genome has 3 billion of those base pairs, those ATCs and Gs. There are 3 billion of those. Now, out of that 3 billion, we only have 23,000 genes. I mean, rice has more genes than Homo sapien. Rice has like 32,000 genes. So the number of genes doesn't translate into complexity of the organism, but how those genes are expressed and how they change in the process of post-transcription, I should say, which we'll get into in epigenetics here in a minute, is what codes for the complexity. But out of those 23,000 genes, we're able to make over a million different proteins through modifications. So those 23,000 little pieces of code somehow end up creating over a million proteins. And within those three billion base pairs, there's what we call these single nucleotide polymorphisms. There's 10 million of those. About one in every 300 base pairs is considered this. This is what makes each of us different. These aren't mutations. These are variations. 
and I'm going to get into single nucleotide polymorphisms in a minute, but I want to talk to you about this first because this is what we normally think of when we think of our genetics. That's what those chromosomes look like, right? Well, that's only at one point in a cell cycle, in string mitosis, that the chromosomes look like that. The rest of the time, they look like this spaghetti here. Okay, this is their clumped chromatin. And in there, you can see you have the DNA strand. It wraps around histones, and the histones coil, and then you have this solenoid chromatin fiber. And, you know, this is what it looks like during division. But the rest of the time, it looks like this, just this bowl of spaghetti in there. And this is important as we get into this a little further. So of those base pairs, then we have these letters. Any, ever, anybody here had their 23andMe done? Yeah, several of you. You get letters. So you find these genes and you have letters. You have A and C or C and C or A and A. And what it is, is it is one chromosome from your mother and one chromosome from your father. And they're looking at a specific location on the chromosomes and matching those. So if your parents had an AC and an AC at those regions, then the egg and sperm would have an A or a C, an A or a C, and you can come up with all these combinations. This is inheritance. And here is where we talk about what makes each of us different, is the single nucleotide polymorphism. 99% of the entire world population has identical base pairs. Well, 99% of each of us has the equivalent base pairs. So there's only 1% difference in your code from your neighbor's code, from the guy in China, from the guy in Africa, from the guy in Iceland. There's only 1% different. But that 1% is what makes us each an individual. And that's what we look at when we look at single nucleotide polymorphisms. These are not mutations. These are not major inheritable disease processes. These are minor variations in the expression of genes or the function of genes that are coded in this genome. And you can see, when we look at a gene, there are different segments of a gene. There are the non-coding portions of the genome, then you have the regulatory sequences of the genome, then you have the coding region of the genome, and then you have the termination sequence of the gene. So you've got a lot of controls placed in along there, and you can have variations in those base pairs at any point. You know, mutations up here in this non-coding region typically don't create any response. But when they're in the coding region of the gene, they can change a protein. And it gets a little more complex than that even because within each coding segment of a gene, you have what's called introns and exons. This is an editing portion. So the, when a gene is read off of your DNA, it creates an RNA strand and creates a messenger RNA. Well, the messenger RNA edits out portions of that code to make a viable code because these introns are thrown away. The interesting thing is when you look at genetic variations, when we look at whole genome sequencing and we look at population genetics, one of the most common variations for obesity is the FTO gene. There's one region called the uh, RS9939609, and it's potent. I mean, if you carry a certain variant of that, your odds of obesity are really high because you have high appetite, low satiety, 
um, habitual eating. So when you have that, you tend to have that response. Well, the interesting thing is that base pair is actually an intron. It doesn't even code for anything. So we're like, well, this is confusing. How can that have such an effect on our bodies when it doesn't code for anything? Well, it turns out that these introns can function in different ways in the body. They can change the expression of the genes in certain ways. And that is epigenetics. So when we have a base pair code that's in the coding genome, and you have an AT there and it gets changed to a GC, it can change the folding of these proteins. So you may have a coding region for a gene that's 150,000 base pairs. It codes for 20,000 amino acids on a protein. But the sequence of those, those amino acids change how it folds, how it interacts with receptors, uh, how other molecules interact with it. So it changes the function of that protein when you have these. And, and this is what we can find when we do our own genomic research. We start looking at our own genes we can start seeing these variations and determine what we're prone to. And it's probability based. It's very cool. I've done this on over 1,500 of my clients, and the predictability is amazing with this. And I only look at about 500 different variations within the genome. And I can predict their appetite, I can predict sugar addictions, I can predict what kind of macronutrient patterns they do best with. You know, are you going to respond best to a high saturated fat or a low saturated fat? Are you going to respond best to high protein or low protein? With predictability. It's not accuracy, precision, but it's predictability, probabilities with this. So don't get confused with this code dictates your destiny. It does not. And that's what we get into with epigenetics. So we have SNPs, we have exomes, and we have whole genome sequencing. SNPs is what you get with 23andMe. On the back end of 23andMe, there are 900,000 genetics SNPs or base pairs that are coded. You can go in there and research that on your own. It's very simple to do if you know what you're looking for. But they don't tell you about that. You have to go into the Browse Raw Data section and find that. Then you have exome. Exome analysis, like companies like uh, Genos, where they will actually look at whole protein coding sequences. Those are more for mutations. Those aren't necessarily for lifestyle variations. Those are looking for major impact, heritable disease traits that you're going to carry. And then you have the whole genome sequencing, which is coming down in price or getting down under $1,000 to get your entire 3 billion base pair sequence. And once you have it, you never have to get it tested again because it's not going to change unless you edit it somehow. But it's there. So it's a one-time test. It's pretty cool because you can then take that and upload it into different things. So most of the studies on genetics are done with what's called uh, genome-wide association studies. And here's where I talk about probabilities. So you have this group of people that have a trait. You have this group of people who are controls and you measure the percentage of the people that have a certain code that carry that trait. And if you see a probability, 60% of the people who have obesity carry this code, whereas only 40% of the control population carry it, you have an association. That's what's called a genome-wide association study. That's what most of the predictability of this is based on. So you can see, you know, even though 
62% of the population has a case, there's 38% of them that carry that same code that don't have that trait. So it's probabilities. And this is how it's done. I mean, generally you have a variation in the genetic code. It creates a gene and a protein. It causes a cellular process to occur, and then you get a trait. But what we do when we do the genome-wide association study is we look at that variation and we look at traits. So we bypass this whole segment here as to what's actually happening and just saying, well, we're seeing an association. It's not necessarily causation, but there is an association here. Now, this is the really cool stuff. This is where you guys have the ability to create change. You guys are truly the architects of your evolution. We underestimate our ability to change our genes, the expression of these genes. Every gene in our body is on a dimmer switch. It can be turned on, it can be turned off, it can be upregulated and it can be downregulated depending on what you do. And the trick is figuring out how to do it. And that's what we work with. So there's all these different ways gene expression can be changed. This is how the, at the cellular level, this is the biochemical level as to what's happening. But let's talk about how modifiable this genetic code truly is. Think about this. You have these honeybees, worker, queen, and drone. They all possess the exact same genetic code. You know how the queen becomes a queen? Royal honey. A royal jelly. The royal jelly has something in it that inhibits a gene called the NMT. It's a demethylation or um, deacetylation gene, an HDAC. By interfering with that, it changes the expression of the rest of the genome. So she gets to live 20 years, and these guys live usually a couple weeks. Changes that completely. This is another extreme example. Same exact code, and yet you see completely different expressions of that code in the same organism. It's not like, you know, they start off this way and they stay that way. This is one that actually transforms its actual phenotypic expression. Anybody watch the, the show Lucy, where she can actually change her appearance? I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about here when a caterpillar goes into a butterfly. But that's the genetic code. We all, every form of life that we are aware of on this earth possesses the same four letters, A, T, C, and G. It's the exact same code. As biologic organisms, we shouldn't age. We are programmed to age. It's not a process of gradual deterioration. There's animals in the animal kingdom that do not age at all. There's plants that don't age at all. The 500-year-old plant is no different than the five-year-old plant from an aging process because it's a biologic organism. Biologic organisms can, re, can rejuvenate without any problems. The only reason we age is because we're programmed to do so. It's in our genes. It's a community-based survival. And yet, there are even organisms that can reverse age. They can actually go back to a pupil form a you know, true Benjamin Button style. So this, this genome, 
once we figure out how to control it, we will have amazing outcomes that we can approach. So when we look at what we are capable of doing that interacts with our genome, that has an effect on our outcome, we look at these seven major categories, sleep, stress, nutrition, hormones, movement and exercise, the environment we exist in, and the mind. All of these have an effect on the expression of our genes to create an outcome. Think about every cell in, this, in your body, every individual cell is constantly assessing what's happening in its external environment. Just like you. You walk outside and it's raining, you go back inside and you grab a raincoat or grab an umbrella. All of our cells are the same way. If they sense a lot of stress hormones circulating in the external environment, they change the expression of the genes that are occurring inside the cell. Chronic stress, chronic change in gene expressions, sometimes permanent. So there's all these things that we're doing right now that can change the expression of the genes. We're even seeing things like posture. If you stand, shoulders back, chest out, spine erect, chin down slightly, you will change the expression of genes in your body. It also changes your thought processes. I mean, the body is an amazing sensing organism, all aspects of it. We aren't just one organism, we're a colony, all of us. We have bacteria that work with us, and on top of the microbiome, which is 10 times the number of human cells, we have the virome, which is 10 times more than the microbiome, which they're just now researching. All interacting. So all of this stuff interacts in an environmental biospherical form that we want to optimize in order to have optimal health. Nutrigenetics is... Frequently, people will say nutrigenomics when they mean nutrigenetics. And nutrigenetics is actually eating for your genes. So if we look at your genetic code, and we say, uh, you know what, you've got an APOE4 genotype, you probably will have a high incidence of Alzheimer's disease and heart disease if you eat high saturated fat, eat low saturated fat. That's nutrigenetics. So you're altering your diet to match what your genes actually code for in your body. With that, we can actually tell somebody should be high carb, low carb, what kind of fats they should consume, how much protein, what they're prone to from appetite satiety. There's actually a gene, called, we call it the sugar addiction gene. It's called uh, TAS2R38. And it's a cool gene because uh, if you have the AA variant of this, um, this particular region of the gene, you're what we call the, the cookie addict. If you have a cookie jar and you go and eat a cookie out of it, you'll keep going back to that cookie jar until it's gone and not have any awareness that you're even doing it. Uh, people mistake that for having uh, lack of willpower. But it's actually in this gene, when you have this variant and you taste sugar, that, that stimulus turns off inhibition of appetite. So you have no appetite feedback at all. It's just, go eat. Uh, it's interesting, we see quite a bit of it. Um, mostly in females, though, it expresses higher in females than it does in males. Males will be like potato chips and crackers, guys. 
Uh, females, though, they're the cookies. Now, nutrigenomics, which is a term you hear a lot about. Now, nutrigenomics is actually altering your gene expression by taking certain nutrients or supplements. This is a really cool field because this is an area where we can actually change expression of genes. We can upregulate and downregulate expressions. We can enhance expressions. We can optimize expressions specifically for the goals that we want to achieve. Just a, a simple example, fructose will alter brain gene expressions in a very negative way. And we can actually reverse that by taking high doses of omega-3 DHA. And it actually reverses that network change that occurs in the people taking the high fructose diet. Well, I mean, fructose, you get it in a lot of places. I mean, it's what you get predominantly from fruits. And believe it or not, it's not the best thing for us. Some other examples. Uh, one of my favorite supplements, Bacopa Moneri, upregulates glutathione, which is our, our uh, oxidative stress system. You know, all these people take all these high-dose antioxidants. It's the worst thing you can do, really. High-dose antioxidants are probably good for the couch potato that doesn't do anything, but they're not the ones that tend to take high-dose antioxidants. It's usually the people focused on health. And you're overriding a management system of the body that is designed to really help keep you healthy. I mean, think about it. When you exercise, you produce more free radicals than any other time. And it's beneficial. You get better strength and you get better longevity from those free radicals. When you scavenge all your free radicals, you take the bullets out of the gun of the white cells that they use to kill tumors and bacteria. So you don't want to go overboard on this. You want to enhance the system that's there to manage this. I mean, if you want to know the truth, we make 1 times 10 to the 24th free radicals a day in our body. That's one with 24 zeros after it. That's the average number of free radicals we produce, and there's no way we're going to scavenge them that well. But let the body do it. Keep the body healthy, keep it functioning well. It does most of the stuff really well on its own without us having to interfere, believe it or not. Choline. Choline is another common one that we like to see. Um, there's a lot of data on this one uh, suggesting that maternal choline intake in humans modulates the epigenetic state of the genes that regulate fetal stress axis reactivity. We also find that women who have genes that code for an inability to produce choline well will generally be told, you know what, your baby's not thriving on your breast milk, you need to give supplements or do um, bottle feeding. And yet all they needed was more choline because their body wasn't producing it and the baby needs a lot of choline to thrive in the early stages. Holy basil, holy basil, another one of my favorites. Holy basil, uh, also called Tulsi, active component is your solic acid. This actually, you can take this and it's like exercise. The brain thinks you're exercising when you take holy basil because in the, in the muscle, it produces this stuff called... Uh, FNDC, FNDC5, which goes to the liver, gets converted to iris and goes to the brain. Brain says, oh, we're exercising. Here's BDNF. BDNF is a wonderful thing in the brain. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And it is amazing. It actually goes in and will inhibit these deacetylation genes and increase memory, neuroplasticity, and decrease depression. So holy basil is, is the bomb. This is one that everybody should be on. It also increases growth hormone locally in the muscles. So it helps you to preserve muscle mass as you age. 
So these are just some studies that I want to mention on different areas about how what we do in the environment actually affects the expression of our genes. So stress hormone. The hormone itself, what we're talking about here, is cortisol. It can alter gene expression, lead to depression, and other mood disorders just from exposing cells to the cortisol. Cumulative lifetime stress can accelerate epigenetic aging as well. So we know we knew stress caused us to age, but we don't know how. And what we're finding now is it's actually changing the expression of our genes. These are things that we have control over. It's that stress response. It's not that we feel stress. It's that expression of the cortisol. When that cortisol gets out there, we, we do psychophysiologic stress testing in my medical practice. And we'll have people come in and they'll say, oh, I'm not stressed. We'll run them through a stressor and they'll have all this tension up here in the trapezius after a stressor. And this is after we remove the stressor, it persists. Well, they don't perceive that they're stressed, but their brain does. Their brain is getting this feedback from the tension in this muscle and causing secretion of this cortisol. So we're not the best at perception of what's going on in our bodies. I'm gonna show you another study later that's really impressive. Um, sleep. One night of sleep deprivation can alter the expression of our clock genes. I mean, these are really, really important genes. These are major regulators in our body, and we do not want to mess with this. One night of sleep deprivation changes that expression. We don't know how long it takes to reset that process. That's why sleep is the first thing we address with our clients. That's what I spoke about last year, is sleep. And you can find the talk online if you go to YouTube, appear on Center. Um, you can find that talk on sleep. Um, but really, my, my wife is a, a colonel in the Air Force. She works with human performance there. And uh, the studies that they did on sleep, scary. Two to three hours of sleep deprivation, you have the same vigilance level as somebody who, or four hours of sleep deprivation. Is it four hours of sleep deprivation? is equivalent to two to three beers. You function at that vigilance level. So if you're an eight-hour sleeper, no, that was two hours for that one. It was four hours that they function legally intoxicated, 0.095, from a vigilance standpoint. That's scary stuff, although the brain doesn't perceive it. The brain says, oh, I'm fine. But if you do testing, their vigilance level goes down. Uh, this was an interesting study on vitamin D. Now, vitamin D is one of our, our big supplementations because almost everybody is deficient in vitamin D. Vitamin D is a hormone. Hormones are potent epigenetic modifiers. At least 160 different processes in the body are linked to this. So you want to make sure you keep your vitamin D levels healthy. Hormones don't go without youthful levels of hormones throughout your life they change genes dramatically. Estrogen is one of the most potent epigenetic modifiers that we know of. So you want to maintain healthy hormone levels as we age. Aging is a disease. It is not a process that is, it's, I guess it is natural, but it's not healthy. We don't want to age. We want to do everything we can to avoid that. And a lot of this is keeping some of these things that, here's what happens. The body we're programmed, we've got programs in our DNA that will tell processes in our body, hey, don't work as well anymore. 
slow down this, this repair process. Don't monitor that as well anymore. That's how we age and die. Because we're programmed to do that. Once we find those programs and turn them off, we're going to have some pretty amazing stuff happen. Uh, this is about um, the omega-3s again. And the omega-3s have a profound effect on, um, on expressions of genes. We can actually change risk, cardiovascular risk. That's why you know, the, the Mediterranean diet is so effective. The Mediterranean diet is effective because of the nutrigenomic capacity of the Mediterranean diet. High olive oil intake, high seafood intake. Works really well with modifying genes. And I can tell you, in the 1,500 people that I have reviewed their genomics, everybody starts off at a base of a Mediterranean diet. And I'm not talking about the American Mediterranean diet where it's heavy on grains. The traditional Italian Mediterranean diet is heavy on fish, olive oil, and vegetables, and a little bit of whole grains. I used to be paleodoc.com. That was me. I was a big paleo guy. And genomics kind of shifted my view of this because I did see in the genes of people that Mediterranean is the core of what we build from. But then we can individualize that and say, okay, well, you're okay taking saturated fat. You've got to lower your polyunsaturated fat percentage intake. So we can modify things based on the genomics. But if you eat a Mediterranean diet, you're good. Just focus on that. This is interesting, meditation. 2,209 genes were differently expressed. Even in the short term, meditators, eight weeks, 1,500 genes were expressed differently. 874 were upregulated, 687 were downregulated. I mean, this is impressive. Our mind actually can change our gene expression. That relaxation response works really well. We, people used to say that that was woo-woo stuff. But we knew it worked. It's like placebo. We know placebos work. If you believe something is going to work for you, it actually does. Even if I gave you a medication, say you came in for high blood pressure and I said you know what, this is, this is a sugar pill, but it's going to lower your blood pressure. If you trust me, it will actually lower your blood pressure. If I say, here's a medication that will lower your blood pressure, and it's actually shown in studies to lower your blood pressure, and you don't believe me, and you don't trust me, it won't work very well. That's the mind changing the expression of genes. It actually works that way. How about this? This is exercise, exercise, six months of exercise. And this is like two to three days a week of moderately intense exercise. Changes the expression of 7,000 genes in a positive way. That's a third of our genome. So you meditate and exercise, you got it. almost half the genome taken care of. I mean, these are genes, these are really important genes that are modified here. PPAR gamma, PPAR GC1A, PDK4, AMPK. AMPK is the longevity gene. That's what they're trying to target with resveratrol. And all we have to do is exercise. We don't have to take anything. Berberine works really well to upregulate that too, by the way. GLUT4, 
I mean, these are amazing genes that we're changing with just exercise. Now, this one's going to blow people away. I just did a podcast interview with uh, Stephen Cole. He did a study with Barbara Friedrichson where they looked at hedonic happiness versus eudaimonic happiness. Everybody agrees happiness is a good thing, right? Just be happy and you're going to do well, right? That's a healthy thing to do. Well, guess what? If it's hedonic happiness, you actually don't benefit. And what do we mean by hedonic versus eudaimonic? Well, hedonic is just saying, I'm going to do whatever it is that makes me happy. And eudaimonic is basically living life with a purpose. How many of you in here have a purpose? About a third of you. That's pretty good. Only about 20% of my patients actually can identify a purpose in life. You need a purpose. Purpose gives life meaning. That meaning is eudaimonic happiness. And you know what? When they looked at immunological markers, the people with eudaimonic happiness had huge boosts in their immune system. And the people with hedonic happiness actually went down. And yet on psychological tests, they all tested very high for happiness and well-being. So you know what? Our brain is not a good judge of our body's response to things. Dr. Cole is actually working on a device that we can use that will self-assess in a very short kind of a home assessment to see if what we're doing is actually benefiting us from a biological standpoint as opposed to thinking that it's benefiting us. So what can you do? So just remember that every cell in your body is carrying the exact same code, and that code can be changed. There is this constant assessment of the environment, and the cells change their expression based on what they're seeing on the outside, just as you would do if you walked outside and it's cold, and you said, oh, I'm going to put a jacket on, and you walk out with a jacket. That's how every cell in our body is actually responding. And so you can look at this genome, these 23,000 genes, yet these, these areas here, there's all kinds of different interactions that are occurring. So you can look at the base genome, but you don't know what's going on here when you go from 23,000 up to over a million proteins. All of this is our lifestyle that changes to get us to that endpoint of the protein, which is really what makes our life what it is. So you can go get your genetic data. 23andMe, you don't need the 199 test. You can get the $99 test. And if you use the 23andMe.com forward slash DR stickler, they'll actually give you 10% off at checkout. Um, I don't have any financial interest in 23andMe, and I don't get any kickback from this one. It's just something they give physicians to get their clients on board. Um, you can go there, and you can get the 900,000 genetic SNPs, and you can go and you can research these. There's places you can go online. You can explore the raw data. You can go to SNPpedia.com, look up things. You can go to Live Willow, Genetic Genie, Promethease. These are all wonderful places to go to, to get data. I have to tell you, avoid the direct-to-consumer genetic reports because, as you probably figured out from this talk so far today, that code is not your destiny, and that code is not a good predictor of where you are. Yeah, you may carry the 
FTO uh, RS9939609, but you know, it could be like a habitus like me. Well, if I had that in an AA, I should be morbidly obese and all this, and that's what the report would tell me. But these reports go further, and they tell you what kind of diet to eat, they tell you what type of exercise you should do, and it's not accurate. You can't use that to rely on that report. You have to be able to interact with someone who understands what it is, and the best option is to find a clinician or a coach that understands genomics, that can interpret with you by understanding what your lifestyle is, understanding the expressions that you have, and understanding the goals that you have in mind. You know, there's a difference in telling someone what to eat if their goal is to lose weight versus somebody who wants to uh, optimize longevity based on the genetics. So your, your eating patterns are not predicted just by the genomics alone, but by the goals and the expressions of those genes. Um, I've seen people that, I had a 78-year-old that was, uh, I mean, fit guy. I mean, very muscular, fit. Um, he, he's actually uh, one, of, one of my doctors, Dr. Life. I don't know if you guys have seen him. He's the guy in the billboard with the Ohio State linebacker body and the 70-year-old face. Um, he actually looks like that. Uh, but he's, uh, he's one of our doctors at a Puron Center. He, uh, he had me read his genetics, and he told me it's okay to talk about it. But he was kind of average from an exercise and fitness standpoint. I mean, and you looked at him when he was 57 years old, and he looked like his genetics. But what he did from the time he was 57 until now he's 78, huge difference. I mean, the guy is, is fit. He was pre-diabetic. He was obese. Um, he was, uh, had heart disease. I mean, all this stuff that was going on with him at 57. And he made lifestyle changes with his exercise. He did hormone replacement too. So exercise, hormone replacement, eating, went to a Mediterranean diet. So all the things he did without knowing his genetics, he just did the things that he naturally thought would work, and they worked great for him. And as it turned out, he followed exactly what he should have with his exercise, with his diet, with his supplementation patterns. So it created an epigenetic response that he wasn't programmed to have based on his genomic code. All right. So I want to leave some time for some questions. I'm not sure how much time we have right now, but... Uh, you guys have some, I'd be glad to, to field them for you. Uh huh. Oh, there's a there's hundred companies out there that you submit. That sometimes they'll take your, your 23andMe data and they'll provide you a report. Sometimes they'll ask you for saliva samples and they'll provide you with a report. If they're not providing you counseling with that report, wouldn't advise doing it because those reports are basically useless unless you really are a biohacker and you understand the in-depth aspects of what each of those genes that they're looking at. You know, what does PPAR-GC1A actually code for and why does this variant mean this to me? If you don't have somebody that can coach you through that and give you the details as to why that's happening and, and relate it to you from a lifestyle standpoint, it's, it's pretty much useless. I interviewed the guy who, uh, who led the, um, the European uh, genomic-based weight loss study. And uh, he's a researcher out of uh, Spain, Nicola Parastu. 
And they found that when people followed a genomic-based diet, so a diet based on their own genes, they had 33% greater weight loss over a two-year period. But even him, as a researcher, he said, you know, you can't just take somebody's genes and say, oh, this is the diet you should be on. It doesn't work that way. You've got to interact with that person. You know, I've got people that, you know, we look at them and we look at an MCM6 and um, it says that they should be gluten or uh, lactose intolerant. They have no lactose intolerance. It's a probability. But if it came from a direct-to-consumer report, or like Prometheus, <laughs> my wife uh, got her Prometheus back, and she's got high risk for prostate cancer and, and male pattern baldness. I mean, Prometheus will scare you to death when you get the report back. Uh, so really, you want to focus on, on the stuff that you actually have controls over, the stuff that you can actually have an impact and that's why you want somebody who really understands lifestyle genetics that can give you that direction. And there, there are several companies out there that are doing that. So. Could you um, talk a bit more about telomeres you mentioned? Was there some hype about it recently about telomere length and that as an indicator for lifespan? Oh, yeah. Telomeres have been, I mean, they've been popular for about the last 10 years. I've been measuring my telomeres regularly. Uh, the problem is telomere testing is... Uh, not the most accurate and and I use LifeLength out of Spain which is really the the premier organization it's like 800 bucks to get your telomeres each each year though but uh, even testing yearly is almost too frequently with it and we see a lot of variation in it um, there's there's better ways to assess that um, and soon we won't have to worry about it. Liz Parrish already extended her telomeres uh, by inserting a gene. Liz is, a, uh, is the CEO of a company called BioViva, and I interviewed her about a year and a half ago, right after she infected her genome with a telom telomerase gene. And she reversed age her telomeres 20 years. So uh, she got really good results from it. Uh, can't wait to get myself enrolled in that one. Well, you, you mentioned two things that can potentially not really work together, like autism and depression. Autism, a lot of the times you'll find true genetic mutations, so not just a minor variation in the, in the genome. You actually see some gene that's truncated or one that's extended or something like that. It really depends on the cause, and there's a lot of different... Um, there's a lot of differences in the, uh, in the take. Go to, go to the Iron Man Executive podcast and listen to an interview I did with, um, hmm? yeah, Jill Escher. Uh, she runs uh, Autism Society out of San Francisco. Brilliant woman. She's a lawyer, but man, I couldn't believe the transgenerational epigenetics that she was able to talk about with autism. Um, and she's of the belief that once it's there, it's kind of stuck. I'm not. Uh, you know, I think there's ways we can do it, but I think that there's a lot of a lot of overhype on it on the internet about all these interactions of all these genes and how you can do this, and you end up micromanaging all this stuff that really doesn't have a great outcome. Um, so, you know, from that standpoint, I don't have a good answer. Uh, from the standpoint of depression, yes, there's definitely things you can look at. Um, BDNF, BDNF alone, raising levels of BDNF expression will actually suppress genes that, that promote depression. 
Um, you can look at neurotransmitter genomics and see if you're prone to um, low reward dopamine genomics or your balance of norepinephrine and dopamine are off. So there's, there's a lot of them that you can look at from that standpoint as opposed to just looking at it and saying, oh, these genes tell me you do better on this antidepressant than this one. That, that's precision medicine. I do precision wellness, so I focus on lifestyle components rather than medication per se. Did you have a question? Yeah, it was just something he mentioned in the podcast that he's wanting to create. I, I think he's in the process of creating it, but it's going to be testing things like, like uh, T-cells, CD95, CD28, um, which is what UCLA's pathology lab tests now for immune function. I get that. I test myself on that because it's better marker for, than telomeres to determine whether you're doing something that's making a benefit or not in a very short period of time. Oh, 25 years, we're going to be immortal. Uh, I, I, you know, I, um, George Church, the head, or he's one of the top geneticists at Harvard. He is like the guru of aging and reverse aging. And everything he's ever predicted has come true. And a year ago, December, he said, within five years, we are going to have a major treatment for aging. I mean, the accelerated expansion of what we're creating right now and with this CRISPR technology, I mean, it was only discovered in 2012, this gene editing technology, and we're in human trials. We have human trials in China and we have human trials in the United States right now. I mean, they are curing cancers with this stuff. I mean, they're reprogramming the white cells to go right after the cancers. Um, there's, I mean, there's people doing thymic rejuvenation, Dr. Fahey. I mean, this stuff is amazing. I mean, it's an exciting time to be alive because I think what we're going to start seeing is these, these impacts that will have, that will create steps in reverse aging. So, you know, in, in 10 years, we may be able to reverse age five years. And then in another five years, we can step back 10 years. And the net result is we're going to gradually creep back until we're of these 25-year-old bodies. It's just a matter of trying to find how it happens. I mean, it's genetic code. We, we have a code. We just have to learn how to read that code. And then we, we've got these tools to modify it, but we don't know enough about it yet. That's what's, that's what's cool. We're already one step ahead, but we've got to step back and say, okay, well, let's understand how this works before we start using the tools that we've, we've been provided. It's like getting a hammer and not having an, uh, invented the nail yet. Like, okay, well, what do I use this for? Um, but now we're stepping back and actually looking at it. Is it possible to reverse aging? It's possible. Is it? If, oh yeah. If something, if there is an, if there is something in the, in life that we're aware of that can do it, we can do it. It's the same code. We possess the exact same code as, uh, they call it the immortal jellyfish. The immortal jellyfish reverse ages. You know, and sharks, turtles, I mean, some of them have zero aging at all. They possess the same four letters that we do. 
So if we can see that example in nature, in, in this biosphere, we have the potential to replicate it. George Church. I'm not allowed to say. <laughs> I'm not. I have a. I have a kind of a contract with one of them, and uh, I'm. I'm in an NDA with them, but it's gonna. It's supposed to come out first quarter of this year, but uh, it's probably gonna be second quarter. Uh, but within two years, it'll be under two hundred dollars. Uh, uh, Illumina just came out with a new. They're introducing their new machine, which is like, I mean, it's the Maserati of sequencers, and um, it's gonna. We're going to be under $200 within two years for full genome. Yeah. All right, one more question. Not organizations, but athletes, yes. Uh, you know, I practice an area of medicine that's about optimizing performance, period. And it doesn't matter if you're a CEO, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a uh, professional athlete, there's ways that we can enhance. You know, the way I see it is we, all life on Earth either evolves or dies. And we are a very fragile organism. We're the only hominoid species on this Earth. It's like every bird on Earth being a cardinal. Okay? Think about that. That's where we are right now. And we are very vulnerable. And so, you know, what is the next stage of evolution? And I think the next stage of evolution is the merging of technology with human physiology. It, it's inevitable. We're going to have to get there at some point if we're going to survive as a species. And I think it's pretty awesome. You know, people freak out over the Borg. You know, they, they always make these mergings like these evil things. <laughs> they really do. And, you know... It's, it's funny because the, the, the Borg was a hive mentality. You know, it was, it was a collective consciousness. You know, what do we all what do we talk about in, in like yoga and stuff? We talk about the collective consciousness. You know, and yet it was like this evil thing when it was the Borg. Uh, like, like it all of a sudden becomes evil whenever it becomes a machine part of it. Um, but it, it's really, you know, I think... I think we're going to see some, some huge advances uh, over the next five years. I mean, we're on this singularity, this exponential rise in technology. It's, I mean, just think about what's happened in the last 20 years and just start cutting that in half in, the, in how quickly it's, it's happening, the advances. It's cool stuff. All right. Well, thank you. And a special thanks to the team at Body Hacks for sharing this recording with us. And remember, if you're able to make it out to Austin, Texas for Body Hacking Con, it'll be worth the trip. For the panels and the topics covered are just a small portion of the action. With the activities and networking available with the other attendees is a true payoff. So our loyal listeners, if you'd like to know more about this journey we take weekly, check out the DMP homepage, dangerousminds.io, or go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash dangerousmindspodcast. Please keep in mind, events like these are listed on our DMP Google Calendar. And if you have an event 
that you would like to add to it, please email us more information about it at info at dangerousminds.io. Now, all of us would like to thank you for joining us as we floor, further explore the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, and implantable technology today. If you like the programming we share and the work we are doing in the community, please support us by going to our Patreon page and becoming a supporter at www.patreon.com forward slash dangerous minds. And please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments, and perhaps we might one day talk to you about the work and our projects you're exploring and developing. Until next week, seek the spark. Scientific progression is steamrolling, there's no preventing it going ahead. Now we're intrinsically linked with technology, biology as we know it is dead.